Um, now, we're going to be in Ezekiel 11 today and ask God to help me. My lungs are full of albuterol. I'm going to try not to be coughing and struggling. Um, but if you get to Ezekiel 11, I want to encourage you, if you did not um, hear Jimmy Beavers last week when he preached Ezekiel, um, I would advise you to go back and check that out. Um, it was a tremendous blessing um, how he preached and shared that overview of Ezekiel. Um, amen. I, I, I listened. I said, his kung fu is strong. Um, it, it was great. And so that's a great companion to everything that I'm going to say today, um, especially being that where we're picking up in Ezekiel 11, beginning at verse 14, is really at the tail end of a, of a thought that begins in Ezekiel 8. Um, have you ever got an email from somebody and it's like a thread and you don't want to read the whole thread? So you start to kind of scroll down and just kind of get the context and come back up and you realize you really need to start all over again. If you really want to get the context and the feel of Ezekiel 11, you really need it from chapter 8 on. Um, you really got to see how hope and God's help emerges in a really, really dark place. Um, but that being said, you probably will ignore what I said. Go listen to what Jimmy preached. Um, last week, it'll be a blessing to you. Uh, so that being said, would you meet me in Ezekiel chapter 11? Um, and we'll read from verse 14, and then we'll pray. And it reads, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, and all of them are those whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them far off among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart go after the, their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord has shown me. Amen. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Father, you are a good God that brings light to darkness. You are a savior, a redeemer, and a restorer. I pray during this time that you would hollow it out to do the work that only your spirit can do, Lord. I pray that you would love someone with my words. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight alone, O oh Lord. You're my rock and my redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, uh, when I was planning our wedding, 
I was given a task in wedding preparation of picking the songs for the wedding. I was going to pick the interest music, uh, everything for the reception. And um, so I started going through all the classic R&B music, all the classic romance music. And there was one particular song that I would put on the list that my fiance at the time would take off the list. And it kind of led to a debate between myself and her and my mother-in-law. Um, the song that I wanted on the list was by a group called Earth, Wind, and Fire. Some of you know it and some of you don't. That's a shame. Um, and Earth, Wind, and Fire had a song called Reasons. And I, I told my wife, I grew up hearing this song, my fiance, and I said, I, I want to hear this song. And she said, there's no way you, they're going to play the reasons at our wedding. And I'm like, why? What's the problem? We go back and forth, and then mother-in-law gets involved. So now I'm upset because I'm getting ganged up on. And she said, have you ever read the words to the song? And I'm like, well, I know the chorus. The chorus is really good. And she said, read the lyrics. Like, I'm offended that you keep bringing it up. I took it off the list. You want it back on the list. And I'm like, fine, I'll read it. But it's romance. Like, that's all, like I love this song. And then I read the words to the song. The reasons is not about love. It's about a convenient, temporary love. The song is all about the reasons why you don't want to be with this person anymore. It was offensive. It was abhorrent. I was going to play it at my wedding. Now, some of you have never heard the reasons. Some of you know Leonard Skinner. Imagine saying, I want to play Freebird as you come down the aisle, okay? This was me, who has two thumbs as an idiot, this guy, all right? Um, and, and, and I had to repent, and I had to think through it, because I'm saying, I love the melody. I love the, the trumpet and the trombone and the stringed instruments and the drums. Reason sounds so beautiful, and the chorus even sounds really, really good. But the substance was against the covenant that I was entering into with my fiance. The substance of it should have offended me as it offended her, but I was blind to the reality that the reasons was not permissible by the covenant that we were entering. The occasion itself prohibited me from playing the reasons. And as you study Israel's history in the Old Testament, there is a melody throughout their history and the, the melody is good as a melody of independence and a, and a melody of seeking to be strong and, and confirmed amongst the nations, yet the substance of Israel's history is profane to God. The substance of their worship is twisted, it's deformed in a way, because they had learned to worship God plus other stuff. They had learned to mix the worship of God with the worship of idols. They had learned to be a nation uh, built by Jehovah, but mingling with all the other nations and all the other gods. Their worship had gone wrong. Worship determines everything around us. Worship is simply this. Worship is the giving of all that I have and all that I am to whoever or whatever it is I love and value the most. It's not just a singing, it's not just a proclaiming and a praising, that's part of it, but worship is how I line up everything that I have, my money, my time, my talent, my treasure, with my God. And God called them to be a people of a unique and holy worship only to Jehovah, and they perverted it. And he responded to it. And if you and I are honest, outside of Christ, we are just like Israel. We are dull. We are blind. We are ignorant. We have dullness of heart. And so if we would see how Ezekiel 11 points to Jesus Christ, first we have to see how Israel points to us. 
We've got to see how there's a heart issue that all of us have and that in Christ there's a cure of. We have to see that one of the worst things ever is when you believe, I'm good, I'm okay, and God says, I hate everything about how you live. I hate everything about how you, how you try to praise me and say you belong to me, but you really, you really don't. And the hope that's going to emerge is that God is a God of covenant-keeping love. That's important. Because in America, we just talk about God, like God is just God. God maintains and establishes covenant with people. Let me kind of draw you through history. Genesis 12, verses 1 and 3. Uh, the Lord was speaking to a man named Abram, who later on would become Abraham. It says in verse 1, now the, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors, dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the very beginning, God's intention and purpose was to spread the fame of his name throughout all the nations. He never intended Israel to keep him to their self. He intended for Israel to love and worship his name and spread the glory of his name throughout the nations. They would go into bondage in Israel, and after 400 years, God would raise up a mediator in Moses, and Moses would bring them out in pursuing the promised land. And then in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, God's covenant with them, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be a nation of priests. What does a priest do? A priest is a representative of God to people, and they bring people to God. The nation as a whole had a job description. Let people know that there is a God, it is Jehovah, and, and, and have that intercessory role where you're so unique, so different, so holy, that it draws people to God. And the basis of that call was God's character himself. God said, I am holy, therefore my people must be holy. It's like the one attribute of God people don't talk about. It's like he's love, he's compassionate. But if he's not holy, he's not God. And so the basis of God's mission, the basis of his plan is himself, is his character. But Israel routinely fails to live in line with this. Their identity is not in line with a holy God. And so for generations, there's this cycle that emerges from Deuteronomy onward where, where they would pervert the worship, they would fall away from God. God would judge them and deal with them. They would call out to God. God would raise up a judge, and a judge would come in as a leader, and then they would do the same thing over and over again. It was a cycle of sin, and God was patiently loving and working and establishing them, and yet they were rejecting him to the point where they finally said, we don't want judges, we want a king. Why? Everybody else has one. 1 Samuel chapter 8. You remember Samuel had been the, the, the leader, the judge in Israel. And the elders, so the leaders of Israel say in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, 
you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when, when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed, verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from, that, from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Although God's heart would be grieved by their sin, nothing ever changed about his purpose. The important thing to know is all the sin in the world and, and all the mischief and all the brokenness that you could ever see around, you could never thwart God's plan. So even when God sees that the people want something that is in, not in line with his character or what he had said he would do, he is still in charge, he is still king, and he says, let them do it because I'm going to glorify myself by correcting the brokenness in them. The God that we serve does not need things to go well in order to redeem. God's purpose is hyper-insulated from foolish people. That's good news. You can't mess up God's purpose. Should have been an amen. Everybody's like, I'm not a fool. I called you a fool because I'm a fool. I need wisdom. I'm broken in of myself. Even when I think I get it right, I got something wrong. And we would see through a succession of kings in Israel, from, from Saul down to David and all his descendants, that, that men will mess stuff up. I don't mean like masculine men, I mean everybody, men, women, mankind. We screw up stuff. They wanted a government, they got it, and the kingdom became a divided nation. Nothing got better. The worship wasn't pure. And so God decrees, after many warnings and pleadings and raising up prophets to speak to them, that he says, I'm, I'm going I'm to deport you. I'm going to exile you. And he raises up Nebuchadnezzar. He raises up this heathen nation of Babylonians, and they come and they break down Israel, and they take part of the people away. And it still doesn't change their heart, though. And yet God has a plan. Let me just pause and say for a minute. God can tear up things in your life, and you're wondering why and what is he up to. You need to know that God has a plan to redeem and exalt himself. And sometimes we experience God's discipline, we experience his correction, and it's like, I don't feel love because God is doing something that is based on himself and not your comfort. It's based on the assignment that every Christian has to love Jesus and glorify him. And so he raises up a nation, they take Israel out, and it doesn't change a lot. They're still fighting with the prophets. They're still rejecting Jeremiah. Ezekiel probably heard some of Jeremiah's preaching because Ezekiel would be taken out in the second deportation when the Babylonians would come back and take people out. And so Ezekiel is the prophet who has a ministry to the exiles. That's what makes him unique. He's the only prophet that has a ministry outside of Israel to the Jews, but he's not in Jerusalem. He's, he's taken away and he's called to minister to the ex exiles. And from chapters 8 through 11, we see how God is leaving Jerusalem in a sense. He's leaving the temple because the worship had already left God out. Jimmy said something last week. He said chapter 10 is arguably the worst chapter in the whole Bible. It... it, it all through their history, we see the glory of God being 
connected to leading Israel and being with Israel and identifying them, and now the glory is gone. My sinful side is still thinking about earth, wind, and fire because it's like after the love is gone. First song that came to my mind. See, all the black people were like, yes. <laughs> it's okay, you can laugh. Um, the desire of the nations is what God was trying to meet. He knows that at the core of every person he created, there is a desire to know God. And all through Ezekiel, you see unfold God talking about, and then you will know me. God wants to be known by people everywhere. And that is a major theme happening here, that God is faithful to his covenant. That is a theme throughout the book of Ezekiel. And so the big idea I want to unpack for us is this. As God's covenant people, we must live as vessels of hope and renewal to the nations. Say that again. As God's covenant people today, we must live as vessels of hope and renewal to the nations. As I said, our text takes place in a very dark and hard time. Israel's leaders have turned against God, but those who are in Jerusalem now, having seen this deportation, seen what Babylon is doing, they are convinced that those who were taken away into exile were the bad apples. And everybody left in Jerusalem are the good people. We're the saved and sanctified ones. We're good. We know God is giving us the land, so we are here um, in Jerusalem. And so the first thing we'll see in the text is that of all God's covenants, the covenants, though are firm covenants, but very, very faulty people. God's covenants had a, had a purpose and a plan and it, un, it uncovered a, a hardness of heart. Israel's heart was hardened. There's this chasm that we see in the text now. I'm going to read you some verses from the beginning of chapter 11. It says in verse 2, And he said to me, Son of man, these are men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel to the city. Some of the leaders that are in Jerusalem. Verse 3, he said, who say, the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Um, in other words, if you remember Jeremiah 29 when Rob preached about it, um, Jeremiah was telling the people, you know, you're going to be taken into exile and you're going to build homes. You're going to bless the city right where you are. And there were other people saying, that's not my word. He didn't preach that to me. We're in Jerusalem. We are not going over there. We are the select. And now God is going to speak against them in a harsh way. And by verse 13, Ezekiel is going to collapse and, and hurt and crying. Skip down to verse 10. Here's the indictment that he gives. This is God's indictment. He says, you shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, and nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Twice he said, you will know that I am the Lord. But look at this. He says, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. The way you know when some of God's people are going wrong, it's not about the external sin. It's not about all the stuff you do. You can always tell when a Christian is going astray by how they approach and feel about God's word. I can always tell when I'm talking to someone that's getting ready to step away from Christ and his church because they start to either question or water down what God has said. And you see in the text, they, they adopted the statutes of other nations around. So it's like, I need something to help me. I need principles and precepts. And as I'm going to drop what God has said and I'll 
pick up from somewhere else. Some of us send our kids off to schools where, where the whole intention of the institution is to replace what God has said with what man has said. There are seminaries dedicated to teaching people to undermine what God has said. I would submit to you that there are schools, seminaries, institutions, and churches in our land where the glory has departed. Because the word is dishonored. I can always tell the barometer of your heart by how you feel about God's word. I preached at a church one time and I made the statement, you can't say you're born again and you hate the Bible. And man, did I get in trouble. I didn't care, but there were phone calls and people were like, he can never preach here again. I did, <laughs> jokes on them. But they were just saying, how could you say that, that I have to change and I have to love God's word. And I'm like, well, what do you think the birthmarks of a believer are? And it's just like, well, I come to church. Like, like I had to deal all week with people who were like contacting me. Some of it was good. Some of it was really sad. Because you saw people who had grown up in church and never grew up in Jesus. You can come in and sit on a pew every Sunday and sing and read the scriptures and do all the stuff and get close to a pastor and never know the Father. And so don't take this the wrong way. Somebody will. We don't need another sermon. We've had sermons, Bible studies. Some of you got five, six Bibles. We've got a whole library of stuff. We don't need more sermons. We need more obedience. We need God to work in us to produce a response in accordance with the word and not just more word. I know some people that are just librarians. They got books. I'm really talking about myself. A lot of books. Don't even read the books, but you feel good with the books. But what are you doing with the gospel? What is the gospel doing with you? Somebody should have said amen because I've seen some of your books. And, and we learn and we get a big fat head and a little small heart. It's not the mark of the spirit in our life. We need the obedience of faith. And so what God is trying to do is, is show us something in the text as we get into uh, verse 14, but first let's read from 13 and get the context. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benaniah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Ezekiel seen in his vision that the judgment is starting with the leaders and now it's going to come to Jerusalem. And even though he's known that this is going to happen, it still is hurting him. It's breaking him. I feel like in a way, Ezekiel longed for Jerusalem. He had been taken away from his home. He was in a new place. And now home is, is, is being destroyed. Now he's got to deal with sinners and a God who's not relating to him at the temple the way he used to. And yet there's hope. Watch this. God's heart to reach the nations remains. His intention is the same, although his methods have changed. Look at verse 16. He says, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, Though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary for them for a while. In other words, God is saying that he is not limited or bound by circumstance, region, or past experience. And sometimes we sin against God because we had one experience when we first got saved, and we say, God, i got to move that way. And we kind of box God in based on our experience and not his word. And we look for God to move the way he always moved, the way we want him to move. God can do anything he wants to do. The task of us is to trust him and be faithful no matter where he has us at. The task is to understand that God can be a sanctuary to you in a tough place. 
Matter of fact, you're going to see in the text, he's being a sanctuary to the exiles, but not to people in Jerusalem. It's the opposite of what they've been saying. And so all of us can admit at one time or another, we've been guilty of looking for paradise restored without Jesus. That's Israel's story. Israel wanted paradise in the form of the promised land. They wanted paradise in the form of a monarchy. They say, government can fix our problems. They say, we'll get paradise that way. They say, we can get it in the form of owning Jerusalem and being identified with that. What was that? All of that was looking for paradise. Every single one of us today is looking for the paradise that Adam lost. And in some way or another, we are pursuing it right now. And it becomes our identity. Some of us are so connected, and I don't mean us, I mean in the city, <laughs> connected to our political tribe, you don't see the gospel shine through, right? I've got my Twitter tribe, my Facebook group, and then I've got all the stuff I say, right? And I stay angry, and I fight with people all week, and then I come to church on Sunday, and I try to let some of that out. Sometimes people can be so caught up in their ethnicity and their race, and it's like you've got to jump between tribes, I go through that a bunch. I went through that a bunch this week. And, and, and I have to debate with people, other people who name the name of Jesus, but to them, they exegete God based on race. And therefore, if I don't perform on the, on the, on the, on the platform of my blackness rather than the gospel, I'm judged. Wherever you are, I heard Gary say something really cool earlier. If we don't get out, into the, the work, into the, into the spaces out here, uh, God's redemptive plan isn't being worked out. See, the, the message we're seeing at the beginning of this pericope of the text is that wherever God has you at, your role is to be faithful because he's with you. And if God is with you, whether it's on the workplace, whether it's in your neighborhood, I'm not going to say in your marriage, but wherever it is, and it's hard, and you're feeling like I'm stuck, God, why do you have me there? Because people need hope. And I have you there to be the fragrance of my presence. Think about what God was working out. Ezekiel is with the exiles in Babylon. Daniel is in Babylon with the leadership and the politicians. And Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem. God has all these people right where he needs them to be. Maybe they didn't feel it at the time, but now we're reading everything about them and we're seeing God knew what he was doing. God knows what he's doing right where he has you. Ask yourself, what does it look like for me to be faithful right here to Christ? It might be just speaking God's word faithfully. It, it, it might be, and it usually is for many of us, is doing a good job in your work. Your public witness is tied to your work. Be the best at your work. Be the most faithful at your work. Don't steal time by reading your Bible at work. That's like the most ghetto thing some Christians do. Like, I was reading my Bible, so you were stealing time from your employer, right? No amen. Okay. But no matter where you are, our task is to develop intimacy, have a connection. That's what the prophets had. Listen, you know God is working in your life, and he's giving you a heart of flesh, when in a way, hear me out, he hardens your heart against the world. Not to be cruel, but in a sense, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, these were people who were so softened to God, they were hardened to the temptations to compromise. You know God is working in your life when the world can offer all that it wants and you are so satisfied in Christ, I, I won't have it. I won't take the chance to make more money. I won't take the chance to, to sign off for your sinful lifestyle. I, I, I won't go that route because I am identified by my 
king. Parents, when you're talking to your kids about how bad Philadelphia is, bad things happen there, um, make sure they hear you talk with hope and a redemptive lingo and not just complaining about how bad the city is. Make sure they see, hear, and experience you praying and using your sanctified imagination to consider what God might be doing around you. Make sure at the dinner table that you are ministering grace to them and letting them know God has not left Philadelphia alone. Hear me out. I'm not saying America is God's chosen land. Somebody's going to hear that in here. But what I am saying is where you are, God's chosen people are, and you've got to think, act, and talk like it. Fathers, refuse to let the kids come in and just diss the city and just, I can't wait to get out of here. Make sure your family has a theology of the city, a theology of hope to know that God is still at work. We all are exiles. We are a church of exiles waiting for Christ to renew us and bring us in. Until then, though, we must be agents of hope. And so the last thing we see in this section of the text is that even in judgment, even in judgment, God was faithful and merciful to Israel. Verse 16, he says, therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off, we got that part, among the nations, and though I scattered them among the nations, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Verse 17, therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries, and where you have been scattered, I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come home, come there, they were removed from it. It's detestable things and all its abominations. You know what's interesting? When you read all through the Bible, Israel wasn't the same when they came back than when they went out. They did not mingle with idolatry the way they did before the captivity. God had, to some degree, accomplished his purposes in the short term. Uh, by the time we see Christ in the New Testament, yeah, we see some Pharisees, but they ain't sacrificing their babies to Baal. Like, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. God's discipline always has a redemptive purpose. God is at work. And so the emerging hope that's coming out of this darkness, it's just brief. What we're going to see as we go on is we're going to see this. Jesus gives us a better covenant. We see all the shadows and types in the, in the old covenants that were there, but Jesus is giving us a better covenant. And let me just say, what we're going to see here is just a, a glimpse. I think it was all... The people can handle at this point because years later in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel is going to unpack what we're going to talk about in the New Covenant. And Jeremiah is going to to unpack these things, but we're getting a little glimpse of it now. Verse 17, Therefore say to says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you this land. Pay attention to all the I wills. Verse 18, And when they come here, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them, and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So wait a minute. I'm arguing that there's a glimpse of the new covenant here, but here's the problem. I don't see the word new, and there's no word covenant. So where did we get that from? We got to interrogate the text. We got to compare scripture with scripture. Who is saying repeatedly, I will? Well, what you'll see in verses 16 and 17, you'll see, thus says the Lord God. Pay attention where you see these different references to God. 
Ezekiel constantly makes use of the Lord God, Adonai, Yahweh. He's referencing God in this way because he's talking about God in relation to covenant people. If God is going to do something new that's not revealed in a different covenant, it's going to come by way of a new covenant. God is not going to do something and not announce it in that way and say, here's the expectation. Here's what I will do. That's what happens in a covenant. I should know what my responsibility is, what your role is, what's the oath. And God is saying, based on me, what I will do, thus says the Lord God, I'm going to work these these things into a covenant people. What's he promising? He's really talking about the beginning of restoration. He's talking about the beginning of cosmic shalom that Christ one day is going to bring to all the earth, but for now it's going to come by way of a peculiar people who are attached to God. Look what he promises. He says, I'll give them one heart, a new spirit I'm going to put within them. I'm going to give them a new disposition. I'm going to remove the heart of stone from their flesh, give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people. What is he saying behind the scene? He is saying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are conspiring to change us from the inside out. That the Father has decreed our redemption, and he sends his perfect Son to redeem as the last Adam to mess up with the first Adam screwed up. And then the Son of God is going to come as the Son of Man to obtain our redemption. Another theme in Ezekiel, you'll see constantly, almost a hundred times, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. It's it's referring to our our humanity, humility. And Jesus is going to come in this way as a man in the weakness of sinful flesh to redeem us. And he's going to obtain our redemption by his perfect obedience in life and his passive obedience on the cross. It's not just that he died on the cross for your sins. That doesn't necessarily get you to heaven. It brings you back to zero. He cancels the debt, but he gives you all of his righteousness. And then the resurrected son sends the Holy Spirit to apply the redemption he purchased for us. Regeneration, in other words, is the Holy Spirit coming to quicken our spirit, to make us alive, and to cause us to believe in Christ. Our hope today, your hope, my hope, is that God would work in my heart and your heart in such a way that, first of all, you get saved or regenerated or awakened to God if you haven't been, but that you more and more continually love and want to see Jesus. The mark of a Christian is not that you do better or your behavior is modified, but that you love God's name more than anything on earth. Jesus says it in in John chapter 7. He says in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What was he saying? The same spirit that's going to cause you to believe, that's going to give you taste buds, a desire, a reception for God, is going to cause living waters to flow in and through you. He never said he's going to give you just enough water to fill you. It's going to flow. There's an assignment attached to that. The same God who in creation uh, hovered above the waters and called things into being that did not exist and created light out of darkness is the God who causes your heart to live, though it be dead. What makes you a Christian is not your behavior, your activity, or how hard you try. It's that God has saved you and adopted you into his family. It's that he's giving you a new heart. Your disposition is completely changed, that you are no longer like you were. You don't desire the things you used to. The things that used to satisfy you don't satisfy you anymore. And listen, you will struggle. There's some stuff God killed in me right away. There's some other stuff. It took a while. I used to have a foul mouth. You smoke a lot. 
uh, cigarettes. Um, everybody looked at me like, was he on crack? <laughs> Judgmental people. Uh, uh, <laughs> he smoked, he used to drink. You do all kinds, and, and I was like, God, take the taste away from me, because I don't want to go to church smelling like cigarettes. Like, Lord, help me. They're going to smell Newports on me. Um, help me. And God helped me. I, I didn't stop drinking beer and all that, and I would, I would smoke. I would hang with my friends who smoke. We would share cigarettes. And I'm like, you go to church with me. Oh, man, I smell. You got to spray it down and all, and shame is there, and you wrestle with it. But what happens is the love for Jesus comes before the change in your life. If you change and don't love Jesus, that's not necessarily the gospel at work. It means your behavior got better. You, you willed yourself better. But when God is at work, there is a love for his name so much so that you spread the knowledge of him everywhere. Y'all ever seen the water towers? You ever seen water towers in some of the townships in some cities? Um, the reason they have them there is because the water tower brings down pressure the way that's needed. Because sometimes during the day, there's... People using more water, sometimes people are not. You need to even out the pressure. You need to spread it out. And what the water towers do is it just brings down all this water, and it's a reservoir. And so what Jesus does when he sends the Holy Spirit, he is sending the Spirit in such a way that we are going out. And he's sending out the knowledge of himself, the, the character of himself through the church. We are never supposed to come to church like this is home base, this is where we hang, and we just don't do stuff out there. We need to be sending. Listen, you got teenagers, I know what that's like. My daughter's 16, and it's weird. Well, she's weird. I'm not weird. But I'm like, Lord, how do I send her out into a world that frightens me? And I got to remember, he birthed her and put me in her life for the sake of sending. And so my job description is to prepare for her and cry and pray and prepare and cry and pray fail a whole bunch, repent a whole bunch, and see what God will do with her. That's all you can do. We're getting a brief glimpse here of what God is going to do in the new covenant. I'll let you know, just in case, if you ever made a personal decision for Jesus, understand that personal decision should be accompanied by public action, public confession. I hear a lot of Christians talking about, you know, my, my faith is a private thing. It was never intended to be a private thing. Never. It was always intended that our own cultivation of holiness would bless the world around us. Your obedience to God has an application in the workplace. It has an application in your home. So ask yourself, how well do I really know God? Am I connected in such a way that the Spirit is using me more and more? Am I connected to God in such a way that I'm praying in the Spirit, thinking in the Spirit, reading, studying my Scripture in the Spirit? What's my witness wherever I go? And as a church, look at the plurality of the text. Are we a church of singleness of mind? And even if we are, we've got to fight to preserve the unity of the church. Hear me out. And I'm not judging here, but so many churches are divided on things that have nothing to do with the gospel. And every one of us here has a responsibility, if you name the name of Jesus, to guard the unity and the purity of the church. Our disposition is not, the elders better do something. It's no. When I see people falling, when I see them faltering, when I see the doctrine is slipping, I, I, I want to speak to that. I want to work on that. Then when I see something great, like Jimmy's sermon last week, you want to encourage it and say, dude, there you go. That's it. We've got a role to play within the church. I'll close on this. Some of you, I think some of you probably heard of uh, the Cellaginella plant in Mexico. Um, it's a 
dry, little ugly looking plant, super dry, has little, little roots. Um, it, it looks like just a ball of leaves. It's gnarled up, it's ugly. It's in the driest regions of Mexico, and for two to three years at a time, it'll just stay this little dried up looking, almost like a golf ball of just leaves and stuff. And they call it the resurrection plant. Because if you were to take a cup of water and pour it on the resurrection plant, within one hour, it would rehydrate and new life would spring forth. The resurrection plant would go from this ugly, gnarled, dry little ball to this thriving, green, kind of beautiful, weird desert plant, all within the course of an hour because it's been saturated with water. I need y'all press in for a minute because you, you need to see where I'm going. You and I were dry and dead. And when God sends his spirit to work, he gives life to deadness. You might be here today and you feel like I'm dry inside, I'm disconnected. You need to understand that God is always more than what you need at the moment. That God always gives more grace. He gives his spirit overflowing to move in and through you. That, that he not only gives you life, but you want to see life everywhere else around you. That, that all of us, in a sense, are resurrection plants. I, I wish I had a church that was praying with me. I, all of us, to some degree, are, are a foretaste of what Jesus is going to do in the new kingdom. All of us are like a hint that God is coming in this world, that we don't have to go about condemning everybody like the prophets may have, but we announce that the kingdom is here and that God is working. Our hope is that God is working today. Our hope that God is going to mature me and pull me through the, the process of holiness and sanctification, knowing my sanctification is for other people. Great place for amen. We've got to get to a place where the Spirit has more of us than a textbook Jesus. Because some of us in evangelicalism bring up Jesus and we forget there's a Father and a Spirit. And so we obsess over Jesus, as you should, but in the wrong way. Because we want Jesus to be out there working, but we don't want to go do the work. Because we need the Spirit to help us. When he's talking about walking in his statues and walking in, in obedience, it's because we're walking in the Spirit. You want to have more obedience? Have, let the Spirit have more of you. you. You want to walk in the Spirit? Become a worshiper and a praiser of Jesus. It is amazing to me the people who say they worship and they know very little about God. And if all you know about God is he's good, then your songs are God is good, God is good, God is good. But when you start to get deep into Scripture and you see how God is faithful and merciful and patient and long-suffering, some of you today, no offense, the reason this isn't speaking to you because you don't understand how patient God has been with you in your sin, your filth, and your sickness, and he's loving you and you don't even realize it yet. He puts up with people like you and me day in and day out while we complain about other people not realizing our sin is disgusting. And he's a father who says, let me wipe you off. I got you. Come here. I'm going to grab you while you're covered in crap. And my cleanliness is going to clean you. Ezekiel 36, he's going to cleanse us. And so in closing, our prayer as we see Christ in Ezekiel is, Lord, help me live out the covenant that you brought me into. Help me to live out the identity that's characterized by everything you do and just about none of what I do other than respond to you. 
our prayer is, God, work in my heart to defeat the sin that I struggle with. Sometimes it's just not sin, it's brokenness. Some of us got trauma and stuff in our past that we've never given over to God. We don't even like to think about it. That's what God wants to work in. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, our God, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the new covenant shedding your blood. I pray, Lord, that you would captivate our hearts and our attention, that you would have an increasing testimony, not just in our church, in our community, in our witness, in our homes, in our marriages, Lord. May we never worship you half-heartedly, but have all of us, Lord. Cause us to see Christ every day as we go to the word, Lord. Give us an appetite for your word, for your statutes, for your precepts. Cause us to be people that chew on it, ruminate on it, and think on it, Lord, I pray. Help us, Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.